Tonight we're going to start a new series, Ties That Bind. You can see more about that in the bulletin at 6 o'clock. Be back for that. Um, oh, one more thing. So getting started today, Don Humphrey, I don't know if you came this morning, Don. You're not here, are you? He is. He is. Where are you, Don? Keep your pointing. There he is. Welcome. Yes, good to have you guys with us today. Um, many of you, of course, long-term, long-time member here, uh, for, for, and, and then not here anymore, but, but part of us, right? And Don wrote a book, among many achievements in his life, um, he wrote a book called The Meanest Man in Texas about Clyde Thompson, and this year it was, it became, it was released as a movie, um, which I have not seen yet. I really want to see that. Uh, looks great, by the way. I've seen the trailer on that. But Don wrote the screenplay for that as well. And it's about a guy named Clyde Thompson. And I'm going to use some things. We did a little communicating this week, and he gave me some material. The, the problem is I had to heavily redact. I mean, there's so much interesting rabbits you can chase in this story. So I had to just take some bits and pieces that I think fit with our text this morning that we will arrive at in Mark chapter 5. But to set it up, back in the 20s, uh, West Texas was a vast and rough frontier. Folks out there regularly endured droughts and tornadoes and dust storms. And between the weather and the rattlesnakes, even the most refined residents of West Texas had a little bit of an edge to them. And a product of that environment was Clyde Thompson, son of an itinerant Church of Christ preacher, uh, sharecropper. Clyde, when he was age 17, this is where uh, his story takes a really significant turn. He actually killed two young men when a fight broke out in Cisco, Texas. This is back in 1928. He was found guilty of murder. Clyde went to death row and was given 60 days before his execution. He came within seven hours of dying in the electric chair when the governor commuted his sentence to, to become a life sentence. He was then sent, uh, or eventually he was sent to a prison farm south of Houston where it was survival of the fittest and Clyde became tough in a hurry. At the prison farm, he earned two more life sentences after killing two other inmates in knife fights. During an escape attempt, he had been shot uh, with a rifle and recaptured. And, and at that point, he, became, he was accused of killing another inmate. This time, he didn't do it. But here's what happened. The, the powers that be there in the penal uh, system decided that Clyde needed to be dealt with once and for all, and so they mounted a sort of publicity campaign against him. The radio went on, uh, the warden rather, went on the radio to declare Clyde Thompson, quote-unquote, the meanest man in Texas. On that same broadcast, think about this one, on that same broadcast, the prison chaplain said Clyde Thompson was a man without a soul. Failing to convict Clyde of the latest murder, prison officials were at a loss over what to do with him. 
In the midst of this, he received word that his father had died suddenly, and this really sent Clyde into even more of a tailspin. And he began to act like a, a cornered mag, mad dog killer. He even threatened to kill the warden. Right? Well, they couldn't make the last murder charge stick, leaving them at a loss as to what to do with him, with this very dangerous serial murderer. Now... A new prison morgue had been built there at the main unit in Huntsville. And so there was no use for the old morgue, a little concrete building near death row. That old building had a solid metal door. It had no windows, and it had six cement slabs where they had placed coffins. And this became his cell for six years including the duration of World War II. After a couple of months in the morgue, they, they did cut a small window in the door, and a guard gave Clyde a Bible to read. He started studying the Word of God. He started doing a lot of thinking about his own life. About, that's about all he could do in that place. And that's only the beginning. We'll get back to Clyde's story in a few minutes. But that story, in many important ways, parallels the story of the meanest man in Gaza, a story that's told in Mark chapter 5, among other places. And we encounter him on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, this meanest man in Gaza. It is a non Jewish area, a rather wealthy neighborhood. Um, but the mention of this man, if you had lived in that place at that time, the mention of him would send a chill up your spine. He was a madman. He was a lunatic. Some might have said he was a man without a soul. The Bible says that he was demon-possessed. He was the stuff of nightmares. On the hills of an area graveyard, he wandered, frothing at the mouth like a rabid animal. His shrieks and his screams could be heard in that area all day long and all night long. It had been years, we are told, since he had worn a stitch of clothing, and it had been years since he had had anything resembling a normal interaction with another person. There was no place for a guy like this in Gaza. Given his unpredictable and violent nature, he had been locked up. The locals on several occasions had literally chained him up with manacles on his hands and feet, but with this otherworldly demonic strength, he had always been able to break free. Enter Jesus and the disciples. Last week we concluded with them uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee and this dramatic moment of Jesus calming the storm. And now they disembark on the beach in this guy's turf. Jesus steps out of the boat and this man comes running to meet Jesus. Jesus has tamed a storm and now he's going to tame another kind of storm in this encounter. A little more about him, though. 
just so we get the visual impression, this, this buck-naked guy running around, self-inflicted wounds, old ones that have scabbed over, new ones that still fester because he cut himself with rocks, we are told. Layer upon layer of dirt, making him look more animal than man. Matted jungle of hair, hadn't been cut, beard hadn't been trimmed in years. And so he occupies the very fringes, the very margins of what you might dare to call a human being. And it's interesting, in in Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus stepped out of the boat. Jesus disembarks into this land of the demon-possessed. And I kind of, I don't know what happened exactly, but I kind of imagine his disciples staying in the boat because they see this guy running toward them and they're, they're thinking we could at least make a quick getaway if need be. And the text gives us information about this guy, but really it, what it does is it paints a picture for us of what our enemy wants to do, of what his strategy is in terms of dealing with human beings in general. And I'm going to use three words to describe his strategy. Lonely, lawless, and lethal. Those are the three essential things the enemy wants to do in each and every human life. Lonely, lawless, and lethal. Think about how lonely this man was. This is the first bullet point there on the outline this morning. Lonely. That's one of his objectives for you, to make you lonely. The enemy works to undermine community and to foster isolation. I have several references there. We won't read all of those. But I'm convinced that this isn't just a story about one guy. Right? This is, just isn't like a jaw-dropping, wow, look at this guy kind of story. It gives us a glimpse into what he wants to do in all of our lives. He knows, the enemy knows, that we are at our weakest. We are most vulnerable when we feel alone. When we feel abandoned. When we feel like no one is for us when he is able to separate us from life-giving relationships with others that we were designed by God to enjoy and through which we we were designed by God to thrive. And so the enemy wants to separate us from any of those things or undermine any of those relationships. Here's what we're told about his isolation. In Luke's account of the story, listen closely to how Luke describes it in Luke 8, 29. In Luke's account, he had been driven by who? He had been driven by the demon into solitary places, into a place of loneliness. That's what the demon does. Did that for him in a very visual, literal sort of way. Does it for us in all sorts of other ways. It wasn't, in other words, an accident that this guy ends up living out there on his own. It is part of the enemy's diabolical plot. He steers us into an existence of loneliness and isolation. And Luke really completes the picture with this chilling remark. If If you just think about... Think of, imagine the picture Mark paints for us here in Mark 5, 2 to 3. A man with an evil spirit came from where? He came from the burial caves. This man lived in the caves. Right? He lives 
at the graveyard. No, he doesn't have a little cottage at the graveyard. He lives in the graves. Okay? Satan. That name literally means, you can look this up, it literally means enemy or adversary because that's who he is. He pits people against each other. He creates hostility between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between colleagues at work, between best friends. He is by nature deeply committed to the destruction of human relationships. We see this from the beginning. Does he not have a role in creating that enmity between Adam and Eve and even Adam, Eve, and the God who made them? So we have an enemy. That's good to know. One who is devoted to destroying us inside and out. One who is determined to infect and incapacitate life-giving relationships. And he knows that you are weakest when you feel lonely. So the man was lonely. And I don't think I would get an argument on this next one. He was also lawless. Lawless. And that's another thing the enemy does. This is the second bullet point there. He attacks self-discipline and unleashes internal chaos. Just some of the things that are used to describe this. By the way, this is from a version called The Message, which may sound a little bit different from the version you might have in your hands. But this is how Eugene Peterson translates this. Think about the lawlessness here. He is described as... A madman from the cemetery who came to meet Jesus. No one could restrain him. And I would say even he couldn't restrain him. No control from the outside or from the inside was possible. Night and day, we are told in verse 5, he roamed. He wandered through the hills and the graves screaming. And then finally, you remember, he says, Jesus says, what is your name? He says, I'm legion, for we are many. This is how Peterson translates this. He says, my name is Mob. I am a rioting mob. The only companionship this man enjoyed were these competing demonic voices within him. We are image bearers of God. We're made in the image of God. We're made to reflect His glory. But where lawlessness reigns, that is made impossible. Your ability to exercise sober judgment, your ability to to make decisions, objective decisions, your ability to steer toward life instead of toward death, your ability to control yourself, when those things are, are turned off, you, become, you do become something less than human, at least the human being you were designed to be. So lonely, lawless, and then, of course, lethal. There is a destructiveness involved where the enemy reigns, using you as an agent of destruction, but also using you and your decisions to destroy yourself, right? Lethal. 
The enemy seeks to destroy and diminish people. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. He can't get to God. He knows God is too big for him to handle. But you and I made in the image of God since the beginning of time. He has considered us, I guess you could say, soft targets. And so he attacks us, and it is lethal. He's hurting himself because of this demonic presence. Verse 5, he's always crying out and bruising himself or cutting himself with stones. Verse 13, check out what happens. You know the story. Jesus casts the demons out. What they do is they beg Jesus, please let us enter into this herd of pigs over there. And there was a herd of pigs grazing over there, and Jesus said, sure. But check out the lethal, destructive nature of these demons. The unclean spirits came out, and yes, they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, were drowned in the sea. That's what demons do, man. They destroy. They end life. But Jesus helps us break free. And what I love about this story, and we'll get back to Clyde Thompson in a few minutes, what I love about his story is we have these stories that witness, that testify to this reality, this truth, that Jesus can help anybody break free. If he can help the demoniac break free, if he can help Clyde Thompson break free, he can help me break free. So a couple things here that I noticed from the story. One is this. Jesus frees people from darkness. No huge revelation, I think, for you there. But will I humbly approach Jesus so that I can be set free? What is the one thing we find this guy doing right in the story? And we see it from the very beginning. He's coming to Jesus. Whatever is left inside of him is drawn to Jesus. He's, he's got to get to Jesus. Verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus got out of the boat a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. He's not just a demoniac, he's a man. A tortured soul, a man. He went to meet Jesus. And I love what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, will fellowship with him, and he with me. Come to Jesus with your darkness. So many people, because of their darkness, run from Jesus. They're ashamed. The only answer for our darkness is to run into his arms, not away from him. And trust He's standing at the door knocking. He wants to come in and fellowship so that he can set us free. The second thing there, and this one's tough for us, okay? This is why so many people keep so many secrets. Jesus calls us as a starting point to confess the darkness. Will I courageously name the demons that I'm dealing with? Will I call them out you know, James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that God can heal you. Name those sins with each other. 
Ask for help. Cry out to God so that healing can take place, James says. And in that story, right, Jesus says, what's your name? And he names it. I'm legion. I've got so many demons. He calls them out. And then, giving us both sides of the equation, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, remains in captivity. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I want mercy. That's what I want. And so the demoniac comes to Jesus, names his demons, and he is delivered. He is set free. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus puts him on a mission. And a lot of times when we think about missions, we think about Kigali or Guatemala or somewhere like that. We think about ah, going to the, the other side of the world. But 99% of the time, the mission work God calls us to is not to the other side of the sea, but it's to the other side of the street. And in this story, he is called to become a missionary to his old neighbors. Go back and talk to your neighbors. Tell them what I did for you. And so Jesus favors people with a fresh start and an important life work. Not just waiting for heaven, folks, but a work here and now. Will I be a witness for Jesus? Sharing with others the good things He has done for me. We often get evangelism and witnessing confused. Evangelism is a gift by the Holy Spirit that certain people have a remarkable gift. Witness, that's what we're all called to do. To be His witnesses. To share what the Lord has done in our lives. And that's what Jesus calls this man to do. He says, verses 19 and 20, Go home. Because the guy, remember he tried to get in the boat with Jesus. I want to be one of your disciples. I want to go on this mission project adventure with you guys. Your mission is back home. It's to your neighbors. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the ten cities there in Jeraza, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And then that commission he gives to all of us from Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We often read that and think he's just talking to that group there, those apostles. No, he's not. He's telling them they're going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. To my knowledge, they didn't get to China. Peter never went to Guatemala. None of them made it to Dallas. He's talking to all of us. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Who's going to talk to your neighbors about Jesus? And so the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 was transformed by the power of Christ to become a disciple. From madman to missionary. From the meanest man in Jeraza to a minister of Christ's gospel. Wow. 
The man turned into an amazing witness of God's grace and testimony simply by telling his story. And that's what Jesus done when, does when he gets a hold of someone's life. Now, from the meanest man in Jaraza back to the meanest man in Texas. So Clyde Thompson, we left him and he was there in that concrete building outside of the main prison all alone but with the Word of God. And he studied the Word of God and he examined his life. And Clyde met Jesus there. He sent word to his brother to come to the prison and baptize him. And he was baptized. His life was turned upside down and Clyde began leading other inmates to Christ. Now, a big part of the story is Julia. I can't tell much of that story due to time restraints, but she had been corresponding. She didn't, hadn't met him personally, but she had been corresponding with him, ministering to him by mail. They ended up falling in love. She believed that his transformation in prison was real, and she would not quit on this campaign to get him released. He had been in prison for years and years, and finally he was released. But the story really is like the meanest man in Jaraza. Jesus had set him, Clyde, free. And he became a difference maker for the kingdom of God. The Spirit of the Lord worked through him in astounding ways. He became a prison chaplain and had enormous impact. He and Julia oversaw a Navajo orphanage in Gallup, New Mexico. They adopted one of the little infants, Shirley Ann, as their, as their own daughter. And I wanted to finish, and, and I've got several paragraphs here, but I think you'll find that it's pretty captivating stuff of what Clyde wrote about his own journey with, with Jesus. So I'm just going to read his words. He wrote that man is the crowning glory of God's creation. God made man in his own likeness and in his own image. And that's why it is a sin to kill a man. There are eight people in their graves because I have lived. People who probably would be alive if I had not gotten them into trouble or killed them with my own hands. It is mighty sad to know that you have killed somebody and that you can't do anything about it as far as giving life back to them. And then he continues talking about his ministry with other inmates while he was still a prisoner. He says, I wasn't a hippie, but I must have looked like one because they only gave me a bath once a week and a shave once a week. They would take me out of my cell and down a corridor where men on each side were lining and there they would bathe and shave me and I would pass out literature. The guard was lenient with me, and he would give me 15 or 20 minutes to talk to those inmates. It wasn't long until I had three fellows wanting to obey the gospel. I wrote to a preacher in Dallas and asked him to come down and baptize these three men. He came, and the warden came around and got me and the three men, and they were baptized. Now, 
they didn't have a place in the walls unit there at Huntsville to baptize anybody. And someone remembered this old, deep bathtub over on death row and suggested that we use it. We went down the corridor of death row where men were waiting to be executed and where I had once been waiting to be executed. There I saw these three men buried with the Lord in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. I was there to greet them and say a prayer for them when they came out of that old bathtub where previously I had been scheduled to be bathed before my execution and where I had supposedly taken my last bath. You think that wasn't a thrill to me? It sure was. A number of other people were baptized in that bathtub too. I continued to study the Word of God. They finally let me begin to get other things in there to study, and they even let me have a light in the place. Finally, they put running water in there too. They just fixed me up to stay. Well, I had turned back to the Lord, and I didn't care anymore about my freedom. I had already changed my attitude toward man, and it wasn't too hard to get this hatred of people out of my heart. He says, My life is a testimony to the fact that a person who has committed murder can be saved. I committed murder. And there are a lot of people saved in this world today because I've lived in it, even though there are eight dead because of me. I thank God that He used me for His cause. I thank God that He brought me to a sense of understanding that I couldn't save myself. The only hope was His mercy through Christ Jesus. And he writes, When one finds out... When one finds out that he is a sinner, lost, undone, and without hope, and he turns back to God, God will help him and use him in this world. Finally, they sent me out to the prison farm, and I did really well. I put the Christmas play on for Captain McAdams the last two years, and I'm real proud of those plays and the men who worked with me. Those men were from the Bible class I was teaching there on the farm. When I left Ramsey Prison Farm, I had 81 men in class, and 60 of them had been baptized into Christ. I want you to know how glad I am to tell you that there is a God in heaven who is a merciful God. And Jesus Christ, His Son, died for your sins. It makes no difference how great your sins or how small. The blood of Christ is the answer, he writes. And then a faithful life unto death will bring eternal life to you. He says... And I'll let him give the invitation here. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, I would encourage you to do so while time and opportunity are given you. If you have fallen short of God's will, won't you make it right with him and live for him in full dedication of life so that he may bless you here and hereafter? And whether it's Mark 5, the meanest man in Jiraza, or whether it's Clyde Thompson, the meanest man in Texas,
their lives before meeting Jesus, both could be summed up by those three words. Lonely, lawless, and lethal. Everyone, almost, had written them off. Men without souls. Men ruled by demons. And their lives and their testimonies are witnesses to this truth. That Jesus can break any chain. No force of hell can contest him. No grave could hold him. No sin that we have committed falls outside of the reach of his amazing grace. And know this. Whatever your past, God is not mad at you. God is mad about you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to break you free. He wants to give you a life. So are you ready to make that decision? Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Will you open your life to Him? Will you wear the victory that He won for you at Calvary over sin and shame and even death? Will you wear that and be baptized into His holy name? Maybe this morning you just need to get with someone and pray. We would invite you, however you need to respond to the gospel, to do that as we stand together and worship.